Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome to the Grace Course Podcast. I'm Phil Drysdale, and this week we have Randall Worley. Um, just going to jump straight in. I did not record an intro to this, so it's going to be quite an abrupt uh, jump straight into our conversation, but it was a real treat chatting to Randall, and I'm really sure you're going to enjoy it as well. All right, I'll see you on the flip side. Why don't we start, Randall, with um, you maybe giving a rough overview of who you are and what you do uh, and why you do it. Uh, that might give people a, a rough idea of who you are uh, initially, and we can, we can bounce from there. Okay. Uh, I've been in ministry for 42 years. I started out in pastoral ministry. I was in that role for 27 years. And, <clears throat> excuse me, now for the last 15 or so, <clears throat> I've traveled internationally, speaking in churches, conferences. Um, I've had the privilege of being in a lot of diverse settings. The thing I think that makes that particularly unique is that uh, in the beginning, uh, I was born and raised in the home, (coughs) excuse me, in the home of uh, what I would, (coughs) pardon me, in the home of what I would uh, classify as being a classical Pentecostal uh, pastor. My dad was mm-hmm. for almost 40 years. <clears throat> wow. And uh, so <clears throat> I owe a great deal. <clears throat> Pardon me. <clears throat> I owe a great deal to those foundations that uh, were very, very vital in shaping me in the beginning. Mm-hmm. gave me a a deep love and respect for the scripture and also recognizing the value of the supernatural and uh, so <clears throat> you said an overview and it may not sound like it's an overview but it really is <laughs> well you, you've, you've had lots of overview by the sounds of it 41 years yeah and so what happened uh, when my wife and I got married 42 years ago, I had no aspirations to be in the ministry, not at all. And I, I don't think it was entirely because of, you know, me being jaded by growing up in, in a pastor's home. But uh, a lot of it just had to do with my own sense of inadequacy and my own personal insecurities. Hmm. And, uh, <clears throat> but at any rate, when I did, uh, accept the call into ministry. Uh, in the very beginning, like most of my peers, I wanted to go along to get along because in that denominational setting that we were in, <clears throat> it was sort of unspoken, but everybody was aware of it that in order to find acceptance and affirmation, eventually promotion within that particular system. And I'm not being critical of them. That's just, you know, this was the culture that had developed and um, they, they tended to think that this, this was the right way, even the only way. Sure. And, uh, but, you know, probably in previous conversations, Phil, I've pointed out to you that 
um, early on in my 20s, I became, even though I didn't describe it in this way, I became aware that I had somewhat of what I would call a nonconformist gene. Uh, what I mean by that is that in those early days, in my early 20s, even though I'd been in a very cloistered religious world, I, I had an insatiable curiosity to grow in understanding, mm. recognizing that uh, what we had been taught over the years, and you know, this was uh, what I referred to as a classical Pentecostal organization. They uh, they were birthed in 1886. It's the oldest Pentecostal denomination wow. in the world, and um, so I. Uh, but I had this insatiable curiosity, and I recognized that again that in this very cloistered world that there there were realms of understanding beyond that. And gradually, what happened is I began. Um, through, I believe, God's sovereignty and his providence began to be introduced to other ways of thinking. Mm. And so it began to shift my theology. Uh, probably my first introduction was, I was probably 21 years old. I'm in a bookstore one day and, and um, uh, you know, in my 20s, 30s and 40s, not so much now probably as, as it was then, um, I was constantly reading everything I get mm. my hands on. And, um, my wife used to joke back in those days. She said, you know, he's married to his books. I'm his mistress. <laughs> and so anyway, yeah. So when you say you're constantly, you mean like, you know, with the view of learning of, of, of developing, you're not just picking up, you know, the latest kind of novels or things like that. you're, you're no, 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 you've got no. a very driven desire to learn in your reading, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and is, is that mostly, because so, the thing that fascinates me, because I, I, I'm like this as well, and I've, I've always had a nonconformist thing. So when I'm, when I'm in a bookstore, I look for, I, what I, fascinates me is how many people pick up a book and they want to find uh, the next book from their pastor or something like that. And I'm like, ah, that sounds boring, right? I mean, you probably already know all that. I'm like, where's the book that I am going to be like, what the heck is this? Is, is that kind of when you right. say you're nonconformist, you're looking for books that you're like, oh, this is totally outside the bubble. This isn't something we talk about, or this is something that's different or new. Was that kind of how exactly. you approach exactly. these things? Exactly. Because I think I, even though I was not fully aware of it, then I couldn't articulate it. I realized that uh, my particular tribe studied the Bible to prove what they already knew. Right. Um, it was a, really a pretext that mm. put things out of context. And, um, you know, it's like the saying, it's not the things that we don't know that give us trouble as much as it is the things that we're certain of that just aren't so. Mm. And um, so, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to frame it like that 40 yep. years ago but I've over time come to understand that. And as you've heard me say so many times ad nauseum, probably that for, you know, when people sometimes ask me, how is it when they, when they come to the understanding of where I started and where I am now in my spiritual formation, um, <clears throat> they typically ask me the question, how did you get here from there? And my response is always the same for whatever reason, God chose to give me a greater faith to receive revelation and a fear of being deceived. I just mm. have never really had a fear of being deceived. And um, so I was in a bookstore one day, I was about 21 years old and I saw this book 
that was written by a man I'd never heard of before. His name was E.W. Kenyon. Now, a lot of, a lot of your audience probably will not be familiar with Kenyon, but mm. Kenyon was a forerunner uh, in his time because most of what he was talking about um, concerning revelation knowledge as opposed to natural or what he would call sense knowledge, uh, those kinds of things, I guess, in, his, in that world was dismissed by most people uh, because he, I, they wouldn't use this language, but he had wandered off the reservation, so to speak. I've, so I found this book in this bookstore. I came home. I sat on the couch and I read it from cover to cover. And that was the beginning. And uh, fast forward, you know, over the years, what would happen? And I recognized a pattern in this that, that I, I knew that God was responsible for it. Um, I would be introduced to another writer uh, that was certainly beyond our particular, uh, you know, belief system. And um, maybe you do this as well. I even do this today. If I, if I get a new book, the first thing that I do is I don't read the introduction. I don't, I don't read the table of contents. I go to the bibliography in the back because I want to know yeah. who they're thinking. Yep. And, uh, and quite not as much these days, but uh, in the early days, you know, I would just, so I'd purchase everything that, yeah. you know, that was in that <laughs> because I wanted to know, or how did you get to where you're at? Yeah. And um, so, yeah, uh, over the years, that's been, that's been my quest because mm-hmm. I've not just been, uh, you know, I've never been satisfied. I've, I've had this and still do. And I hope that I continue to for the rest of my life, this insatiable curiosity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I came to discover that Jesus I think that was one of the most attractive things about him. Uh, obviously, uh, the signs and the wonders, the profound teaching, the um, the compassion that he demonstrated. But I think that he represented also a safe place for people that were curious. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, I heard an interview uh, that was done about three or four years ago with a, a highly esteemed rabbi from some rabbinical school in Manhattan that gave language to a lot of my feelings. He first of all, first of all, began to talk about the, uh, the Torah has 70 different faces. When he said that he had me because I knew that what he was expressing is that it has at least 70 different perspectives. Mm. And he went on to say, and it was quite comical, but, you know, really insightful. He said, between two rabbis, there's at least three opinions. Um, where I, you know, I had a pause for a moment, at least, was he said, you know, one of the, one of the distinctions between, one of the many distinctions between Protestants and people that are Orthodox Jews is that, um, you guys really don't understand the value of argumentation. Mm. And he said, we actually see that argumentation is an act of worship. That was, uh, I, I didn't have any concept. I didn't, I didn't understand what he meant by that. And then he went on to say that we feel like that when we're engaging in a very hearty conversation about a particular topic, that God actually smiles at that because he mm. sees that we the two of us are really in 
pursuit of truth. Of course, that, that imagery just summoned all kinds of things to me, you know, even from the Old Testament, you know, for mm-hmm. example, and, and even the language that Jesus used, you know, in the Old Testament, you know, uh, the Ark of the Covenant had two cherubim yeah. uh, that were on the mercy seat and they faced one another. And God said to them, he said, I will speak to you from between the wings of the cherubim. That whole imagery may seem ancient, but, uh, but I think it has relevance uh, and contemporary application in as much as that these are not just replications of angelic creatures, you know, the cherubim. Mm. Really, it shows us what happens and how God speaks to us between the faces of two individuals, not just angelic beings. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, no, absolutely. You know, Jesus, I think Jesus was actually referencing that imagery when he said, if there's any two or three that will agree is touching anything, I'm in the midst. That is imagery that is unmistakably taken from the tabernacle of Moses. You know, this is the, this is this, um, this dwelling place of God in the old Testament in the wilderness wanderings. And, and there's so much imagery there, you know, from all the pieces of the furniture, but in particular, the cherubim on the, on the mercy seat. And so, uh, it, it almost sounds like when Jesus said, if there's any two or three that agree is touching anything, I'm there in the midst that he was basically saying, well, if you have two, I would prefer three in essence, what he was saying, where there are two, I am the third that is in the Mm. middle. So I think, I think God really speaks to us in that face to face, what we're doing right now in that face to face encounter with one another, he delights in it. This is, this is where he appears. This is where he reveals himself. It, it really does. And maybe I'm getting too far afield here out. That's um, great. This is good. There's no, no topic to stick to. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and so, um, I, I really do think he delights in that. That's where he desires to speak, but it does require something that you and I talked about earlier. I think something that is extremely rare, at least from my perspective, not only in the broader culture, but in the church culture in particular, and intelligent humility. And when, when mm. I, you know, that sounds like an oxymoron, you know, intelligent humility, where, wherever you have intelligence, rarely do you have humility. Um, but in, in, in particular, it's been my experience in the church culture. You rarely see intelligent humility being demonstrated. Mm. And the reason being goes back to what I mentioned that the rabbi said, is that you know we we come together in a conversation and a, a friend of mine recently pointed this out to me the distinction and it may sound like he was playing semantic games the distinction between discussion and dialogue mm. and at first when he began to talk about this i thought i'm i'm not sure i understand where you're going what, essentially what is the difference between discussion and dialogue we well, went on to say that discussion is is a word that is in the same family of the words percussion and concussion he said the reason why a lot of discussions are not productive is because it's almost like us beating our heads against one another (laughs) it doesn't demonstrate that intelligent humility whereas dialogue dia with log Mm. is that we are leaning into one another recognizing that our logic, all of our, uh, you know, our logic is flawed, that none of us is as smart as all of us, 
that's that has been uh, the guiding principle for me for a long mm. time. That's why I'm not wow. threatened by things that that challenge what I previously believe. You know, I use the example quite often, and and this again, I think, is not too far away from what I started out talking about in my particular journey, because. Um, you know, I even have people that consider themselves to be incredibly progressive thinkers that probably have concerns about me now that I'm entertaining heretical ideas. Mm. Um, I understand that even that word in the early church had a different connotation than it does now. Yeah. You know, uh, because uh, a friend of mine recently, when I began to talk about you know, my understanding of the word heresy or heretic for years, I was hearing, even though no one confronted me personally, that I was getting into heretical ideas. And, you know, it was kind of off-putting and, and <laughs> damaging to my self-esteem until I decided to, you know, to revisit the word heretic. And I discovered that it means somebody who thinks differently from the norm. There's that non-conformity yeah. gene I was talking yeah. about. That's a badge but, to wear right That. Yeah, yeah. And when I brought that up, when I brought that up recently in an interview with a friend of mine who I have great respect for, a real theologian, uh, he interrupted me for a bit. He said, Randall, he said, when you talk about being a heretic, you're not talking about it in the connotation of, of the early church, those that had deliberately and intentionally tried to undermine the orthodox ideas mm -hmm. Of, of, you know, patristic theology. I said, no, that's not what I'm talking about at all. I said, you know, when it comes to the Apostles' Creed, there's, to me, there's no, there's no negotiation there. You know, this is, mm -hmm. this is the fountainhead of truth. This is as close as we can get, you know, to the headwaters of, uh, of all that we understand to be the kingdom, which would be Jesus. And, and so anyway, uh, but I did point out, you know, that I, I, I really enjoy Seth Godin, uh, who mm. was a real thought leader, you know, of course, in the business community that said in his last book, I believe it was about tribes is that heretics are the new leaders. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's a matter of semantics. You know, some people hear that and when they hear the word heretic, they immediately think of somebody, you know, that, that is trying to deliberately in a subversive way to undermine the things that we consider to be non-negotiable. I don't think that's always the case. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, absolutely. It, it's, it's like, you know, it is true, and this is not original to me by any means, but it is true that there was already a narrative that was in place when Jesus began to preach what we call the gospel. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and he was that heretic, right? He was the person yeah. that was subversively undermining the, the narrative that we took to be absolute and true. Right. And some of that is, you know, some of what we hold to be absolutely true is, is great and it is absolute and true. But a lot of what we hold to be absolutely true is probably absolutely nonsense. <laughs> I mean, if we're, if we're humble enough to admit, you know, that we're flawed and we grow and we develop and we, we grow in a, in a, in a very natural human way, we, we, we introduce a lot of rubbish to stuff, you know? So someone subversively going, maybe we shouldn't kill all the Muslims to try and convert them. Maybe there's a better way. That's probably a really great heretic. You know, <laughs> I, I'd be very pro that heresy. Um, yeah, so absolutely. Yeah, one of the most helpful things for me uh, many years ago, I was reading through the book of Acts 
And I came to the portion of scripture where Luke describes Apollos and how he meets Aquila and Priscilla, this couple. Mm -hmm. And they were, you know, people that were of the way, you know. And um, I love the way Luke describes him. And he he ascribes some pretty lofty uh, accolades Mm -hmm. to Apollos when he says that this man was not only mighty in the scripture, but he was eloquent of speech, which you rarely find somebody that has that kind of gift mix. You know, Mm -hmm. not only does he have a great command of the topic in this, in this case, the scripture, but he's also very articulate and eloquent. Interesting that when Luke describes him meeting Aquila and Priscilla, that when he met them, he says that they explained to him more perfectly the way. Hmm. Now, my takeaway from that was that, and this is helpful, I think, to a lot of people that I'm meeting all over the world right now, that is it possible that what you have known in the past is not inaccurate? Hmm but very possibly incomplete yeah. because what Apollos had known up until that point was not inaccurate, but it was incomplete. So a lot of times, you know, when I'm trying to posture people's thinking, especially when I'm asked, you know, to try to assist the, the host um, leader in shifting the thinking of people, I will start out trying to disarm them by saying, you know, how many of you at this very moment in time, passionately believe certain things that at one time you didn't I always get a hundred percent response. Everybody raises yeah. their hand. I said, okay, well, there are certain things that you passionately ardently believe right now that at one time you probably were suspicious that it might be heretical in nature. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Well, is it possible that as you continue to evolve, as you continue to experience spiritual formation that you're going to discover that there are other things that are not heretical and that they don't really challenge what you believe to be essential. Mm -hmm. Now I know you started out asking me about my journey. So that's, that's sort of where I've been for all these years. And, you know, as you already know, and you're going to continue to find out, because you're about the age of one of my sons. My oldest is 38 years old. Um, it's costly. Mm-hmm. It really is. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, at least, what's happened um, is that uh, there's so many things that I've read, so many things that I've heard that I can't unsee, I can't unhear. Um, and so I've, I've really sought the Lord for wisdom in navigating uh, the days ahead because I recognize, as we talked again before we uh, started mm. recording, the importance of transcending and including. Because if, it, if, if what I'm coming to understand in higher levels of consciousness. And that kind of language should not be off-putting to Christians. You know, when they, when people hear that higher levels of consciousness, they immediately think that, you know, that it has such a new agey tone to it, that it's it's out of bounds. It really Mm -hmm. doesn't fit with the teachings of the New Testament. It absolutely does. You know, Paul talks about the renewing of the mind. He talks about you know, are not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of our, I mean, this is, this is a major theme for him, you know? Uh, but if we are 
transcending or evolving. It should all, we know that we genuinely are if it involves including other people, which brings mm. me to the point that I was going to make because years ago I had a crisis moment in my life where I thought, you know, I am just so far removed from where mainstream Christianity is right now in so many of the things that I believe to be true. Yeah. And so I had a, I had a crisis of conscience, you know, and I thought, you know, I can't continue to be a part of this. And that's, that's when I felt like I got clear direction from the Lord that it was not an either or situation that, and again, I don't mean for this to sound like, you know, I've got this uh, sense of inflated self-importance, but I, I began to see that the reason why I started out where I described and, the, and I've come to where I am is to be a bridge of sorts because mm -hmm. there are people that are on the same path. Yeah. And if I had pulled the plug, if I had said, you know, I'm sorry, I can't, <clears throat> excuse me, I can't continue to um, relate to you any, any, any longer uh, because my beliefs are so different than yours. Uh, it would have been a serious error. Yeah. I think that's the reason yeah. why we're having this conversation right mm -hmm. now, you and I, yeah. and many conversations I have throughout the week with mm -hmm. people that are at least beginning to recognize that there are safe zones. Uh, where, because most of them, you know, it's a matter of life and death almost, you know, yeah. it's, it's yeah. career suicide for them. If they talk openly about really what is happening yeah. in their hearts and minds. So how did you navigate? So for me, that's a huge thing. I, I, I really struggle with this because, you know, for me, I grew up Christian, moved into ministry, kind of reluctantly dragged a little bit by God into ministry. And, uh, was traveling and speaking and doing a lot of what you were doing, you know, itinerant stuff, you know, sharing with leaders, going into their churches and sharing with their communities and helping them and equipping them. But behind the scenes, if, if I was uh, moving with congregations at a pace of five, uh, I was behind the scenes moving at a pace of 20. You can't, you can, you can grow internally a lot quicker than you can help other people grow. Um, and so I'm outstripping what I'm teaching in a sense, and I'm moving on beyond that. And it left me at this kind of like tension, you know, where I'm like, I'm going into a church and I'm teaching it things that I don't even know if I believe that anymore, but it's important for them if they're going to bridge this gap to understand these things. How did you navigate that internally? Like, you know, did you have people around you that you were able to be open with that you could process with, or do you have to kind of like just go deep in and, and, and do that with, with God or what, what did that look like for you? Well, I, I have not had uh, more than a handful of people over the years that I've been able to have, you know, find objectivity, you know, mm. um, to talk to. And when I say a handful, I mean, literally a handful. Yeah. And um, there, but there have been seasons where I felt very alone. Mm. And, um, and I understand the value of that. Um, I think at least from my experience over the years that sometimes we, we need to recognize while loneliness is not a good thing, you know, you, it makes you a real target. Um, uh, it, it is not good that man should be alone, yeah. which is not, you know, just a, a verse that 
that works well in a marriage ceremony. Um, you know, God made us for interaction to ha have that whole human experience of interaction with other people. Um, but I do think that there are some times where he has to get you alone in order to form within you apart from other influences, mm. uh, something that is very unique. I mean, uh, I guess the, the example that comes to me that is best is, uh, in Galatians when Paul talks about what happened with him when he is sequestered, you know, to the wilderness for all those years. Mm. And uh, said only for a two week period, did he come out of seclusion to go up to Jerusalem and to confer with the apostles. And he made it clear that the reason why, which I find to be stunning, the reason why that he was sequestered for all those years was so that Christ could be fully formed in him. Mm. And, um, you know, he even starts out in Galatians, you know, because this is a whole book about law and grace, but he starts out in the opening verses of Galatians. He said, I'm an apostle, not of men or by men, but by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's pretty audacious. You know, he's basically saying, I don't need your affirmation. I don't, I don't need you to confirm who I am. And, um, and the other thing to me that is just absolutely staggering about that is that, you know, this man, he really had no rivals. I mean, he talks about his resume in Philippians three. And I mean, you know, not only is he brilliant as it relates to the law, but you know, mm -hmm. to the Greek culture, you know, to his own culture. Um, but to think you would think that after his conversion, that he's, he's a candidate that is ready, you know, to set the world on fire, mm -hmm. but God put him in that place where he was alone until the, the revelation of Christ was fully formed in him, you know? Yeah. So yeah, I, there have been times where I have felt very alone and I knew that it was the, it was the dealings of the Lord. Then there've been other times where, you know, it, it has been, uh, a very serendipitous experience where I have met people mm. that have been, on the same track that I've been on. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's like a divine nudge where he's saying, okay, you're, you're not alone. You know, get, yeah. get out of your Elijah syndrome. <laughs> you're, you're the only one 7,000 have bowed their knee to bail. Uh, Juniperitis, you know, as we used to call it. And, and which that's really neat. You know, that's, yeah. that's maybe a topic for another time. I, I do believe without question, that the people that we connect with in life, that our destinies are running parallel to one another mm. and that God had determined even before we were ever conceived that there would be points of convergence that would take place out there in our history. I've seen it time and time again, you know, uh, when I use the word coincidence, I don't see it as something as some random event that happens. Uh, I see it in a geometric term terminology that, that a coincidence is how two lines perfectly converge. Mm -hmm. And so I do believe even this conversation I'm having with you right now, uh, to me, co a coincidence is not a, something that has no rhyme or reason. It's not a, you know, uh, it, it really has to do with God revealing to us how he has 
predestined mm. us. Yeah. And the refreshing thing about it, for me at least, is that when I come to these convergence points that is coincidental, I realize that something is completed in me mm. as well as is completed in the other person. Yeah. You know, Absolutely. we all know in part and see in part, you know? Mm. Yeah. Did you ever feel you were insane? You ever feel like on, on the journey go, well, what if I actually am completely heretical? What if I am going off the deep end? Like, because yeah. you know, generally speaking, you're, the, the nature of being a forerunner or going into some sort of new truth or higher spiritual consciousness, whatever whatever language we use behind that, generally speaking, it's the you're the one and the ninety nine are still left behind. So yeah. it, it can you do, do you did you ever go? Oh, maybe I'm I'm the one sheep. I'm not the I'm the one forerunner. I'm the one sheep, and I need to be rescued. Like, did did you ever kind of find yourself in those kind of uh, moments of, of oh? <laughs> yeah, I did. I did in the early years, not so much now, mm. um, but I did in the early years. And uh, as I think I mentioned earlier, it comes with a great cost because mm. I'll give you an example. Um, and I'll give you, if you don't let me forget, I'll give you something that for me is my litmus test as to whether or not what I am looking into is truth or heresy. Mm, okay. But before I get to that, uh, there was a guy that I went to high school with. We graduated at the same time. Uh, we got married about the same time. We started, we, we were uh, roommates in college. Uh, we started ministry about the same time. Still love him deeply. Uh, but he stayed on that particular denominational track mm. still is. Uh, he's a few months younger than I am. And, uh, I remember years ago, I thought, why, you know, we're going along like this. And then, you know, there's this big fork in the road. <clears throat> why did he stay more traditional and conventional in his thinking? And I went the other way. Well, it's not meant to sound like false humility. I'm not smarter than he is. You know, I think it was because for whatever reason, and he's a wonderful man. He loves God that, you know, but he's in a very, very cloistered world, very yeah. cloistered world. And, um, you know, he actually is a part of a movement that has lost the ability to, you know, what was a movement that's lost the ability to self critique. And as a result has become an institution. Yeah. Um, and so I wonder why, you know, and I'm not sure I'll ever get that answer. You know, it, maybe it's part of the mystery, um, that we all have to embrace about our journeys. Mm. Um, you know, I, I do believe that over explanation will always rob us of astonishment. Hmm. And, and, and I'm, I'm one that, you know, because I'm so analytical, I, I want answers, you know, uh, I'm learning the importance of mystery now more than ever in my entire life, knowing that uh, having more questions than I have answers is good. It's yeah. good. And um, so anyway, uh, yeah. Did I feel like I was losing it? I, I, and this, <laughs> this may be difficult for some people to uh, pardon the pun to wrap their mind around. 
but you know, in the revelation, in the book of revelation, uh, which is, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, not the antichrist, which was a discovery I made about 25 years ago that just turned everything upside down for me. Uh, mm not only eschatologically, but I began to understand the Bible is not a dispensational book. It was a covenantal book, which changed so much. Yeah. And so anyway, uh, I understand that what John is referring to the souls that were under the altar, you know, because this is probably the most symbolic book in all of the Bible. Uh, it was, you know, it was sent and signified to a servant, John, which signified means to be written in signs and symbols. So it, there are a lot of people that, consider that had to be written in that way in a very cryptic way because of the intense persecution that the first century Christians were experiencing and that Nero of course couldn't he couldn't decipher the code so to speak but when he talks about the souls those who had been beheaded and their souls were under the altar mm -hmm. I know that he's talking about martyrdom in the first century there's no question about that but if you remember the position of that because you know, the, the scripture has so many different layers, layers of meaning, you know, going back to the Torah has 70 different faces. Yeah. It has this, it has a historical context and value too, but also has even far more meaning when you look at it in a mystical sense. So I believe that before we can ever ascend into that throne room experience where he sees the scrolls that are, you know, sealed within and without that are open, we have to lose our mind. Hmm. I, I'm not talking about me being physically beheaded, yeah. but in many ways, does that make sense? In yeah, many, absolutely. Before we can ascend to that place that John talks about where he sees a door that is open in heaven, we have to be beheaded. Hmm. We have to lose our mind in order to experience the mind of Christ. Hmm. You know, I think that's really what, you know, when you, you were earlier talking about, and I don't want to confuse your listeners, but we were talking about <laughs> spiral dynamics. Yeah. I was just thinking that's something that we should maybe go into yeah, there. Transcending in consciousness. You know, when you get to that, when you get that highest level of consciousness, the thing that is right above it is actually the mind of Christ. Mm. Uh, that, I think that's one of the in takeaways, one of the interpretations of how he who was rich became poor for our sakes, that he descended into the lower levels of man's consciousness so that he could ascend and bring us back yeah. into the consciousness that was originally ours. Yeah. Um, so I told you to remind me, you didn't have to. Yep. Your litmus test. Yeah. So my litmus test was this because I, you know, this is something that I dealt with internally and uh, I, you know, because I wanted, uh, I, I didn't want to, get into something that would cause me to, to question God's existence or that, you know, uh, was, was Jesus, was all this a hoax. And so <clears throat> one day I was reading, I guess it's in Matthew's gospel, I think it's chapter 20 and just kind of stumbled onto it. Even though I'd read it many, many times, you know, Jesus asked the question, what's the greatest commandment? Mm. And obviously, you know, these scholars, quote unquote, scholars were constantly trying to trap him. Uh, and, uh, you know, his response was uh, that you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Upon these hang all the law and the prophets, because the question they had was not about the Ten Commandments, was about 613 or 614 mm. uh, that he's referencing from the Torah. And so when I read that, I thought, okay, this is my litmus test. 
if what I am looking into causes me to love God more now, and when I say looking into, I'm not just talking, let's, let's take the whole field of theology and put it aside and let's consider, you know, if I'm making the right application of this perennial wisdom in general, the wisdom that has come from so many different streams, schools of thought. If, if these things are result in me loving God more, and the sequence here is important, loving God more, loving myself more, and loving other people more, it must be truth. Mm. Now, that may be profoundly simple to a lot of people, yeah. uh, but I believe that to be true. Uh, and I've, <clears throat> so it's, you know, so to speak, settled my nerves. Yeah. Uh, and I don't, I don't have this angst about, well, I don't know whether I ought to read that because it's going down a road, you know, I'm not, I'm not certain about, you know, whether it be about hell or heaven or the afterlife or um, who's in, who's out, you know, all, all these things that are lightning rod issues, obviously, right now in such polarizing times. Because mm. you know? um, I, and, you know, maybe you want to go down this road now. I, I'm deeply concerned. I mean that sincerely. I'm deeply concerned, especially here in the West, with how, with how it seems like the, the, the media right now is more responsible for discipling believers than the message of the kingdom. Hmm. What do you mean by that? Go, go into that a bit. <clears throat> well, I'm stating the obvious that um, here, here in, the, in the U.S., uh, the lines are getting so deep, the divide, uh, the polarization is palpable in nature. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I, it's concerning to me when I watch the media, which I think is probably going to have sound like it's uh, conspiratorial, but I, I think with great intention, that they craft a script or a narrative with the sole intention of continuing to divide, dividing and conquering, so to mm. speak, that when I lay down tonight, uh, as we all will this evening for rest, we don't realize that during the night that the system here, as it is around the globe, is creating a narrative and they determine what we are going to pay attention to tomorrow mm -hmm. that, uh, that will shape our thinking and our reality. And that's the reason I think I maybe got off subject a few minutes earlier. There was already a dominant narrative that was in place when Jesus shows up. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> this is not a unique perspective to me by any means. And that dominant narrative, that's the reason why when he used, I think we think the word gospel is rather benign. Or the, when we hear the word gospel, oh, that's the good news that Jesus saves. But mm. Jesus is actually using a word that was already in play at the time, which was akin to propaganda, because the gospel that was being preached before Jesus began to bring an alternative and even subversive form of wisdom was a gospel that was being advanced by the Roman Empire. Yeah. That was, you know, the way that peace is, is accomplished is through conquering. Mm. Um, this, you know, this whole, uh, dividing and conquered, dominating, colonizing all the, all these ideas. 
Phil, I wish that in some ways, I wish I didn't know these things. Ignorance, I guess, is. <laughs> you know? Well, it is. And you see this because, you know, I mean, um, uh, the amount of people that are not aware of how media is even filtered to them. Um, so we can maybe look at the really obvious uh, elements of, uh, you know, so as a European, I'm often amazed when I go into America how extreme it is. Um, so I go into America and, and you literally have news channels that are like, oh, yeah, we are right wing news. And I'm like, what, is, what does that mean? News yeah. means we're giving you journalistic integrity uh, based facts without a bias, without an agenda for you to filter and think about and, and, and understand through your right wing or left wing. Oh, no, we're a left wing news. And I'm like, that's not what news means. You can't have right wing and left wing news. Now, right. everyone, of course, brings a bias to the table on some level. So there is no unbiased element. But the danger to me is that's obvious. And I think it's scary that people don't see it that way. I think there's plenty of people that just watch their news and think it is unbiased news. But what's really scary is I think people that are in other parts of the world look at that and go, oh, wow, that's crazy. Thank God we're not like that. And mm -hmm. the danger is that when it's done more subtly, so you look at maybe how social media works and social media just creates this little bubble around you where it just goes, oh, you're liking that. That's causing you to spend time on our network, buying our ads or yep. feeding on our ads, serving us money, generating profit. But if you see something that you don't like, you close the page and leave or you put your phone back in your pocket. Okay, mm -hmm. we'll stop giving you those things you don't like that are probably true or at least a different view that might challenge you to think. So they just shut down all these uh, opposing ideas, um, different concepts, and, and you end up in this little bubble, believing bubbled reality on some mm -hmm. level. Um, and so I think it's a huge element. And, and the, the way that it informs us politically in our day-to-day -day life and how we do life and raise our family and run our business is, is scary. But that on an on a even greater level for me is how it informs us spiritually, how we allow that to affect us spiritually. And we live in these spiritual bubbles in the same way. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's what we've historically, the, the element of that is if you... Uh, look, historically, the average person going to church for the last 500 years in a Protestant background, there was no other narrative. You know, no. if you were part of a Baptist church, the, you, the Baptist pastor told you what he learned in a Baptist seminary, and you accepted it as the Baptist truth. And it, but it wasn't the Baptist truth, it was just truth. Um, right. If you had questions, you, you didn't have anywhere to go. You could only go to talk to your pastor. You're not going to ask the pastor, are you wrong? Um, no. And so we live at least in a new era where we can start asking questions, but I don't think it comes, I don't think those different pieces of information naturally come to us. I think we have to seek them out. And I think that's why someone like yourself is really important. Someone that actively seeks it out and actively tries to present it to people to, to create a bridge for people to come across and, and ex be exposed to new ideas and new possibilities and a new way of seeing God. Um, I think that's mm -hmm. something that we almost have to, um, aggressive is probably the wrong term but but aggressively go out there and make happen because it yeah. doesn't naturally happen for people i don't think i don't think that's the way we, we we've we're built um our systems no are I, I i don't i don't either and i you know we we talked about this again before we started recording is that uh, i'm also not only am i concerned about the degree to which the media is discipling the church here in the west uh, but I'm also equally concerned about a lot of very clear clarion voices that are addressing 
very important issues as it relates to racism and social justice and all of all of the things that we should be concerned about as kingdom people. Yeah. But I think the propensity is, and I'm seeing it happen. I'm not trying, you know, I, I say I'm not trying to be critical. I guess they, they probably will assume that I am uh, about the tone of it. Mm. Um, because, yeah, I get that these, these topics need to be addressed. Um, but when it, be, it, to me, it's becoming toxic because, you know, I'll put it to you this way. The quickest way to become a Pharisee is become good at identifying one. Mm. So true. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's the spirit of what we have to say. Yeah. You know? So if you're calling out all these injustices, you're talking about white supremacy and racism and social justice. Hey, I'm with you. You're, you're exactly right. But be careful what spirit you're of mm. because you're going to become guilty of the same thing, you know, that you're calling them out on. Mm. Um, and that's a razor's edge. I, I, I get that. And I also know that is, you know, again, off recording, we're, you know, there are, there are people that are more than likely going to say, Oh, okay. If you don't stand for something, you're going to fall for anything, which, you know, they've come too late to play that card with me because I, I am seeing in my own personal experience mm -hmm. in a microcosm, I am seeing how this works and I have genuine, healthy conversation and connection with yeah. people that are on the far right, as well as I do with people on the far left. Yeah. And I think probably the one, one of the reasons why I'm seeing some success in that is because I'm not trying to convert either one. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. they, they probably sense or recognize, they discern that I'm not interested necessarily in arguing about how wrong they are. Because yeah. a man who is a man who is convinced against against his will is of the same opinion still. Yeah. Yeah. You know? um, and um, but if they sense that you love them where they are, yeah. you know, to me, <clears throat> that's like uh, I was talking to a group of people some time back, and you know they're championing these causes for uh, people being transformed uh and i'll just leave it at that as vague as possible and and i pointed out to them i said do, do you realize that transform what trans genuine transformation begins with accepting people where they yeah. are rather than saying you need to change you need to come over here mm -hmm. you know uh, if people sense that they are accepted where they are, who they are, regardless of their condition, regardless of their belief system, regardless of their human condition, um, then that to me is what activates transformation. And that transformation probably won't look like what I think it's supposed to look like. Yeah. That's another thing. Mm. You know? Yeah. No, absolutely. I think, it's, it's interesting you talk about it because at the end of the day, if it is our, if our metric is, do I love God? Do I love myself? Do I love others? 
I, I think you cannot love the person in front of you until you understand them. You just, you can't, you know, uh, uh, you, you can do your best, but at the end of the day, I need to understand your story, who you are, where you're coming from, what your pain is, what your hurt is, what your passions are. It, when I understand these things, I can love you more effectively. You just need to look at your, your relationship with your partner, right? You talk to your partner and until you kind of get what makes them tick, you're going to try and love them and really piss them off potentially. Right? Yeah. Um, so you need to, you need to understand, you need to, you need to know where they're coming from. And I think the issue is until we understand, we just, we're just fighting with an enemy because we conflate the issue, which maybe is toxic and, and awful. You know, it could be um, some very toxic Christian belief. It could be a very political thing. It could be a social thing, whatever it is, that is bad, that is wrong, that is anti-kingdom, that is anti-love, anti-goodness. That needs to be killed. It really does. It needs to die. But until I understand you and how you have become embroiled in that, I'm going to conflate the two and you are my problem. And I think that's the, the danger is for me, um, I, I totally agree with you. Like I'm often seen as, as um, not, <laughs> I'm seen as too left for the right and too right for the left. And I go, oh, I don't even like this idea that there's people on right and left, you know? Right. But, but the, the, the reason for that is I, I probably have my own preferences and my own leanings and they probably do lean more in one way than another. And I probably do, at least before I speak, think, oh my gosh, what an idiot. Or, you know, <laughs> we, all, we all have our moments. Um, but on the whole, my number one goal is how can I understand you? How can I understand where you're at so that we can have a conversation? And you look at this in, um, you look at in, in practical terms. Um, I talk to people on a political level and, and I talked to, I was just in the South in, uh, on a trip throughout uh, Georgia and, um, and where was I? Louisiana and Georgia. Um, and I was talking to some uh, groups of people that have gone through radical change. Um, and, you talk to them and you go, oh, so tell me, why do you believe what you believe politically? Because me coming from Europe, you know, when America talks about right and left, as a European, your left is still pretty central, if not right. Yeah. <laughs> so we live in these totally different bubbles and worlds. So for me, I'm like, oh, I want to understand because it's very easy for me to look at a right, central or left position in America and think, whoa, that's extreme. It's still all very extremist to where we are in the same way that most Americans look to Europeans and go, oh my gosh, these guys are extreme crazy. They're communists, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and and, and it's, it's sitting down with a person going, why do you think the way you think? Why do you, you know, one of the examples is one of the guys I was talking to was, he was like, oh, you guys are crazy socialists. He's like, socialism is deeply evil, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, all right, let me stop and ask a few questions. And he's like, yeah, okay. And I was like, if, if, if you had um, someone on your street day in, day out who was starving and it would cost you pretty much nothing to make sure they could eat, would you feed them? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, okay. Uh, and I'm like, okay. So immediately that's something that from the, from the, the, the European crazy, you know, left perspective that I might have, I'm looking at people that are poo-pooing socialism and I'm thinking, oh, they don't care about someone that's poor and homeless, hungry. Oh no, they do. And I said, oh, if, if you had someone that had uh, broke their leg and you could get them in a car, drive them to a hospital and, and make sure they were healed and it didn't cost you inorbitant amounts, it didn't affect your family negatively, would you do it? And it, yeah, of course, I'm not a, a crazy deranged animal. And I'm thinking, well, that's funny because that's how a lot of Europeans do see America's policy on healthcare or, right. you know, and, and, it, and it's when we start asking questions and going, oh, we're humanizing one another and we're realizing we actually both love people. We both want the best for people. We both want uh, to care for people. None of us want to see people starving. None of us want to see people 
you know, dying on the streets. We don't just want to see a, a war happening, um, it, maybe with a few extremes here or there. Um, it, it, it humanizes and it opens up a discussion. And, and immediately this person, when we start talking about this, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. Can I tell you how I've perceived this conversation, how I've perceived the, the way that some of these policies look? Or can I tell you how it works in Europe a little bit? He's immediately like, yeah, please tell me more about that. I'm really interested. Just me asking and me opening up to go, do you want to hear some of my perspective? He's immediately open to it because I've asked him more of his perspective. I'm, I'm opening up to what is your perspective? How can I understand where you're coming from? And it's, and it's opened up my heart to love him more. If yeah. I'm honest, I, I, I probably was more sheltered or more um, uh, conservative in my offering of, of uh, a real open, vulnerable love towards that person because right. I was being defensive because I don't know what this person thinks. You know, if they're pro... I don't know, the death penalty. <laughs> I don't know how, how generous they'll be to me if I say I'm not. You know, I don't know. Because someone is pro-death penalty. Are they violent? Are they, are they pro-death? Are they pro-killing people? I don't know. Yeah. Um, it is extreme thoughts, but they, they lurk in the back of our heads when we're talking about people that have radical different thoughts. Um, mm-hmm. So anyway, sorry, a bit of a ramble. But no, no, no. These, no. these dualistic ways of seeing, I guess that's my point, is we become so dualistic and, and we just blanket statement like yep. categorize entire groups oh you're pentecostal oh so you believe this 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 well that might work for your friends that hasn't deviated much but it certainly mm-hmm. doesn't work for you no. and so but until i have a conversation with you you're in that group whether you like it or not and that's just so unhelpful yeah i think it was um are you familiar with parker palmer i don't think so parker, no. palmer. palmer doesn't ring a bell yeah, he's a, he's a great Catholic thinker. Uh, that's not the best way to describe him, but he's written a number of books. Um, I think it was Parker that said that the only real honest question is one that doesn't already have an answer. Mm. Yeah. And, um, and I think that's true because uh, most of us don't realize that the questions that we ask, we already have determined the answer that we're wanting. They're so loaded. Yeah. And it's not an honest question. You know, it's like, it's like the lawyer that came to Jesus, you know, when he tells the story of the Samaritan and (laughs) he asked the question uh, because he was wanting to defend himself. He wanted, he wanted a certain answer. And, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I I hear what you're saying loud and clear. I I um, this this whole thing of labeling and you know right and left insiders outsiders you know that you know the fear of the concept of inclusion. Mm. You know, I wonder if they're reading the same New Testament. Mm. You know. And, and so much of this, and this is not this is not just something that is unique to the West. So much of this is just ego driven. You know, when you come back to dualism, um, dualistic thinking, and uh, you know, I love the writings of Cynthia Bourgeau and Thomas Merton mm-hmm. uh, on the false self and the and the real self. Uh, been so enlightening to me, um, and. Uh, becoming more aware of my own egoic 
operating system, so to speak, mm. that the ego has this, um, this need to want to categorize, label, quantify um, everything and everyone. Mm. And why? The answer is very simple, because this is what continues to perpetuate my sense of superiority or uniqueness. Mm. And, you know, uh, Bourgeau is, is brilliant at, at bringing a balance to it and talking about how that there are certain things about this that are essential initially in our formation. Um, Father Richard Rohr is brilliant at it too, you know, mm. to have life and falling upward. Uh, they're, they're not, you know, maybe this is not the best metaphor. They're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. They understand that this is, this is essential as human beings to our, our formation in the beginning, but eventually you have to become aware that my identity is not that I am white, mm. Caucasian, that I'm a male, that I'm a father and a husband, all those kinds of things. That's not the core of my identity because if I allow that, you know, to be the filter through which I perceive my world around me, it is going to lead to this dualistic thinking. It is going to cause me, you know, I, I taught some time ago about the myth of separation, mm. um, you know, going all the way back to the, to the origin, the seedbed of it in the, in the, the Genesis narrative and how the, that has been perpetuated, you know, all the way to where we are now. And you, you see, you see that the pathology of that in the scripture, um, truly it is a myth that mm. this myth of separation. I, I still, you know, I by no means mastered it. You know, I, I'm, I become more and more aware of it in instances where, um, I, I feel, either appalled by somebody's mm. behavior um, or I find myself offended by their belief systems or whatever. And mm. in, in those instances, I'm, uh, I'm reminded I'm not separate from them. Yeah. yeah. Does that make it's sense? Interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And what intrigues me about it is, uh, you know, when we, when we look at the, the evolution of humanity as, as culturally, I'm not saying, you know, people have to believe in evolution or not, but just as we've grown as humans, uh, we can see this, like this forking between the East and the West and, and mm -hmm. um, Eastern philosophy, Eastern religions, and then our kind of Western neoplatonic kind of like um, perspectives and how that shaped our religion, which is Christianity. What's interesting to me is the Eastern religions um seemed to if they were going to hone in on anything it was that it was the ego it was trying to rein in this ego trying to see something beyond themselves maybe seeing the other as even them on some level you know it's, yeah. it's i'm loving my neighbor as myself that that's a very uh it, it's very in line with a lot of eastern uh, religions what intrigues me is how that seems to be very much at the core of, of Jesus's message, you know, I mean, loving your neighbor. Really? But even, I mean, he's literally saying, if you want to love God, go love that person over there. When you love that person, you're literally loving God. It's not as if you're loving God. It's not pretend you're loving God. So you love them well, or you are literally, when you love that person, God's going to go, Oh, thank you for loving me. So there's yeah. this, this, that's a core thing of Jesus for sure. It's there. Absolutely. And yet we seem to have, um, almost gone the uh, the other way. It feels like Christianity is so egoic uh, in in its in its 
baseline. It's so me, 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 me. Mm -hmm. um, and it's so about developing our ego. Um, what do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Cause, cause that's something I think about a lot about how we seem to have drifted from that core message to such a degree. Well, a couple of things. There was, there's a, a very, almost a sound bite. Um, I, th I think it's maybe in the gospel of John. Uh, I don't remember the address right now where Jesus said something that I, I think when those who heard it the first time, the disciples, it was a bit of a conundrum for them. He said, if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose it, you'll discover it. Interesting, isn't it? Uh, and, you know, we have reduced that to, you know, some salvation pitch, you know, um, it, it's, it, you know, I, I don't want to get off topic here, but, you know, I point out sometimes that people with uh, sincerity often describe to me their conversion experience as when they invited Jesus into their life. Mm. And uh, when I hear that, I wonder if that doesn't need some adjustment to understand that you didn't invite him into your life. He invited you into his, mm -hmm. which was a selfless, altruistic experience. And the question in the psychological community and sociological community, is it possible for any human to do anything that is totally altruistic, that doesn't have a motive mm -hmm. behind it? Uh, so but I, back to what I was saying, I think that what Jesus was, was addressing there when he uses the word life, um, if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, it, you know, it traces back, the etymology of the word traces back to the Greek word suke, from which we get psychology, mm -hmm. which, is our, which is wrapped up in our ego, our, our persona, what we believe ourselves to be. And most of us live our entire lives in totally an unconscious state of uh, not understanding that we're not who we think we are. We're not who other people think we are, but we think mm -hmm. we are. We really do. And so uh, I think that that really is part of the whole journey that we're on as, as humans is to somehow recover to discover who we really were before we had a face. Mm. Not just our consciousness, but the consciousness that he had of us mm. before our conception. Now it's, it may be sounding a little mystical, but I don't know. Um, but, you know, Paul's, Paul makes it clear in Ephesians that we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world, that we are not the product of our parents' passion. You know, I, I, I put it this way, you know, my mother's womb was a dressing room for me to manifest out of eternity into time. And then when I came into this material world, there were all these things that began to shape my identity that might not have had anything to do originally with his idea or his image of me. Okay. So yeah, I, um, this, this whole thing, you know, and I deal with it every day. I don't always deal with it very well, you know, uh, 
I'm thankful that at least I'm beginning to learn it now. You know, for, for, for many years, I would become very discouraged as to why didn't I learn this earlier? Why didn't I get this in my 20s? Why didn't I get this in my 30s or whatever? But it's, you know, it's like the, the old proverb, when the student's ready, the teacher will appear. Mm. So now I'm learning to be thankful for, oh, thank God, you know, I'm yeah. beginning to make these discoveries and, you know, and this may, this may be something that um, you know, some of your listeners would take issue with. That's okay. Um, that, you know, the prefix re, R-E, which means to go back, right? Mm. I think I, I had it in my notes at one time. I think it's used about 300 or 400 times in the scripture. So is it possible when the Lord says to return, to remember, to be restored, um, to revive all of these prefixes, is it possible that it actually has to do, or remembering, it has to do not just with something that is confined to my own memory, Mm. but the consciousness that he had of me before I ever was conscious of him? You know, that's, uh, that's Jeremiah, you know, when he is expressing his sense of inadequacy, you know, uh, when he's tapped, you know, for, to become a prophet mm-hmm. and he has all these excuses as to why he's not worthy. And, you know, God speaks to him. He says, you know, before you were formed in your mother's womb, I knew you. So I think the whole hum- human experience, the whole journey is to discover what he knew about me before I knew anything. Mm. You know, I, I really think, why did God introduce himself to us to begin with? Why did he do that? I put it this way. God introduced himself to us so that he could introduce us to the person he knew us to be before we, we became the person we think mm. we are. Wow. I like that a lot. So that's losing your life so that you yeah. can find it. Yeah. That comes back to, you know, am I insane? Am I losing my mind? Yeah. That's the souls under the altar in the revelation. Mm. You know? Because I think the whole thing, when John is, is given that invitation in chapter four, you know, I grew up in a tradition that taught that that was, that's unquestionably uh, a text that proves the evacuation or what they would call the rapture of the church. I heard a voice that said, come up here. And, and I think that that, that uh, really has to do with how that he uh, transcended to a higher level of consciousness that mm. the door was opened, you know, for him to come up into that realm and to see things from a, an entirely different dimension, from a heavenly dimension. I think that's what it means for heaven to come to earth. Yeah. So you, you said that, you know, you, you've not got a stand, so don't worry, I'm not going to hold you to like, you know, laying out the perfect framework for anything. But, uh, you know, you do say you're, you're wrestling with this, you're trying to figure it out, you're trying to, um, uh, you know, navigate, how do I let go of this this life that I make in it? You know, how do I kill the ego so I may, may ascend whatever that looks like? What does that look like for you? What, what are some of the practices or... Um, things that you've experimented with that have helped you in that practically, like day in, day out? Well, uh, you know, I, as soon as you said that, I thought about the, the statement that Paul said, I die daily. Mm. I die daily. And it, it is daily. Um, 
I, I, I feel like I'm making progress if even, you know, a couple of days out of the week, I became, I become acutely aware that, okay, uh, I'm dying a little more mm. that I might live truly live. I'm dying a little more to that false self, you know, uh, obviously, you know, you, you mentioned earlier about evolving, uh, as opposed and I tell people that I do believe in evolution. I'm, I'm not a Darwinian, but I do believe in evolution. And, and if you, and if you read the new Testament, if you, the teachings of Jesus or even the apostle Paul, it just, it's, it's another word, but they, they, they teach evolution. Like, you know, you're changing physically speaking. I've been changing while I've been talking to you. My body is changing. You know, I get up when I get up off this couch, I'm, I'm going to leave my DNA behind. Mm -hmm. you, know, you, you have to see it with a microscope, but it's here, you know, I'm changing. My body's changing. My mind is changing. And so, um, I may not be answering your question is satisfactory, but I, I think I have to take joy even in incremental mm. changes to this whole thing of recognizing the distinction between my false self and my true self. Mm. Um, because it can get incredibly discouraging because, you know, we, we have a way most of us, um, forget what we should remember and remember what we should forget, you know? Um, and so for me, I think it comes through cultivating, you know, being aware of that and as much as I possibly can convulting, uh, cultivating a more contemplative lifestyle, you know, uh, understanding that, uh, knowing God, you know, the sound, the well-known sound bite from Psalm 46 to know God means that you have to be still, you have to, you have to come into that place, uh, that what Roar calls deep time, you know, yeah. learning how to be fully present. Uh, Tolly was right when he wrote about the power of now, mm. you know, because, yeah. You know, as the, who was it? The Trappist monks talked about, maybe they got it from the Buddhists, the, the monkey mind, you know, is it's constantly reminding us. Chattering away. Chattering away, yeah. And it makes it almost impossible to be fully present. So mm. I'm caught between my past and my future. And I don't realize that that real transformation has to happen in the moment. Mm in the moment yeah. Yeah. and as much as, as much as technology is a great blessing, it's equally a curse. And as much as yeah. it, it's made us almost totally impossible as yeah. to be fully present. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I always say to people, I'm like, you know, we, we all think we can be present to some degree. I, I think we're self-aware enough to say we can't be fully, um, but I'm like, if you go and sit in a room on your own with nothing, no technology, no people, nothing, no yeah. You'll go insane in minutes, in, in minutes. If you're lucky, a lot of us in seconds are like, oh yeah, I don't have my phone or, you know, like we're, we're yep. reaching for something to distract us from being present with yep. ourselves, you know, just being here. Um, 
and, and I'm fascinated by that, that element. That's something that I constantly working on. I, have, I host a book group uh, here in our home every couple of weeks. And uh, we, we just started doing um, Rob Bell's How to Be Here, um, which of course is heavily influenced by uh, Ram Dass's Be Here Now and all these kind of uh, principles that ultimately all stem very much from a lot of Eastern philosophical and religious kind of concepts of being present. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just... I, for me, it was something I was so conscious of when I started to realize oh, I need to like have a little bit of death to self. <laughs> and I was just, I just need to be stopped so wrapped up in this world that constantly thinks of what's happening next or constantly is like reliving the past, regretting the past, thinking I'm so great for the past, whatever it was, you know, just living in those highlight reels of the terrible moments and then constantly paranoid about the future, constantly excited for the future, but never once actually just being present in the moment and just being happy to be here, just to yep. experience life, to take a breath in and experience the, the joy that is when you can just take a breath and, and enjoy it for what it is. You know, tap, step out on a nice day and you breathe in that fresh air after it's just had some yep. rain or something and you just go, oh, it's just beautiful. And I, I miss it every day, every second of every day. I miss it on the whole. Um, yeah, and, and most of the stuff is really hidden in plain sight, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, um, uh, I, I have believed this for a long, long time. That you know, and I think it was uh, Saint Francis that coined this phrase that that God's original language was creation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, what does that mean? That means before man took his first breath before he even began to develop this thing called language to describe what he was seeing that before he made an audible sound that silence existed before sound Mm. and that that you know in the paul brilliantly and concisely says says in romans one that the invisible things of God are clearly seen from the creation being understood by the things that are made. You get this knee jerk response from a lot of people, especially some of the latest books that have come out that uh, say, Oh, that's pantheism. You know, uh, I like what was it? Rohr said that it's not pantheism. It's panentheism mm. that everything is not God, but God is in everything, which brings us back to that whole thing that, you know, the myth of separation dualistic mm-hmm. thinking that we're not separate from one another. We're not, that's the reason why the planet is suffering right now, you know, is because we, we have not stewarded it. We've not treated it like a garden. Yeah. We've not ended it like the progenitors of the human race were commissioned to do. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I certainly admire the passion of those that are bringing that to our attention. You know, yeah, I think, absolutely. That, yeah. I mean, so an- another thing that I, you know, I've, I um, I believe that a lot of that is accomplished the death of the ego uh, by being fully present in a moment by rec- recognizing, and I'm the world's worst for it because my mind is always going. You know, I've, I've, I've read for years that you know you have between sixty and seventy thousand different thoughts in the course of a day. I probably have one hundred twenty thousand, and uh, but you know, to be fully present uh, with whoever I'm with, mm-hmm. not trying to formulate a response to what it is they're saying. Yeah. Uh, to when I'm out in creation to, to recognize the wonder of it all, 
and 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 to know that it's so easy to you to lose the wonder you know uh things as simple as and i don't get it right that often but um at least i'm making progress uh practicing gratitude mm. simple gratitude you know yeah. um, realizing not just what i have in creature comforts but the experiences I've had in meeting people. Yeah. You and I talked about before we started recording some of the people that we've had the privilege of meeting, being in their presence. And, and, and not so much being enamored with them, but being just so uh, engaged with the image of God in them. Yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think that's, beautiful the the moment the the words i often think of the word namaste uh, it makes me mm -hmm. i just I, I love it the whole the the divine in me or the light in me recognizes the divine in you or the light right. in you and, and and you can look at that from the new age you kind of like all the different perspectives and poo poo or whatever but i think that that ultimately it's that same thing it's it's christ in me recognizing christ in you and i think how often in my day when i'm talking to my wife do I genuinely believe that this is some divinely created, magnificent, extraordinary person I have the privilege of, of just being in the presence of, you know, or yeah. that, that might be easier depending on how great your wife is. For me, it's wonderful. It's nice and easy maybe. And I maybe do it three times a day if I'm lucky. But what about the, the teller in the grocery store? What about yeah. the homeless bum that you walk past? You know, to what degree am I able to be, the present and, and look at that person and go, Oh my gosh, that's God. On, yeah. on some level on a, on a metaphysical, hard to grasp completely, maybe on some level beyond our comprehension, that's Jesus Christ in the flesh. That is God in the flesh. Yeah. Um, if we're to take the words of Jesus, literally, um, which I quite like to do on the whole, <laughs> maybe less than what is symbolic, but, um, but you know, I'm like, there's nothing more present than in that moment. There's nothing more present than, and I think to me, it's actually easier to do that with the creation, right? So maybe looking at the panentheism kind of thing of like, it's very easy for me to look at creation as sunrise and go, Oh my gosh, I'm witnessing God, something divine right now in the, right. in the sunrise. Or I watch a David Attenborough documentary and I'm like, Whoa, <laughs> you know, it's like, this is cool. This is amazing. There's something profound about that, but it's, and some of it's actually harder when it's the, the people I rub shoulders with every day. It's the, it's the, right. the people I, even the people I look up to, never mind the people I look down on. Um, it, it's, it's a whole nother level of, uh, for some reason it's, it's more removed. I don't know if that's the way that we see our humanity. If, if that's the way we, uh, we're quite Gnostic in that sense, it becomes much more fleshy and, and tangible and it, it removes itself from the spirituality and the, and the divineness of, of, of God, of, of the ultimate creation. Um, I, I don't know what that is, but it's definitely something that I war with in myself of like, oh man, I, I'm not recognizing the divine in, in people around me. Mm -hmm. and, and what would it look like if I did, right? Because in the few seconds I do sometimes, you know, that changes everything. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the occasional time I see a homeless person and go, Oh my gosh, that's God. Maybe I should pull over and not drive right past them without thinking. Maybe I should see if they need some food or if I can bring yep. them up in the hostel tonight or something. Yeah. Uh, practically, you can't do that to every person you try. You know, I, I'm not saying you have to, but it definitely changes things immediately. 
Yeah. Yeah, I uh, I resonate so much with what you're talking about. Um, I, I think probably f- for me, as I mentioned, that you know I don't get it right that often. Mm. Uh, but I think the first steps toward experiencing transformation is is, is recognizing the need for it. Yeah. You know, I would hate to go through life. Um, and not even be aware of any of the things that we're talking about. Yeah. You know, uh, and it may be, it may be an ex- extreme word, but you know, just living in completely narcissistic ex- uh, existence. Um, so I try not to obsess over how seldom I get it right, mm. you know, and be thankful that I even know this, that I'm yeah. aware of this. And, um, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's something that I think is a very important conversation these days and maybe has been treated more like a a more, a peripheral issue when it's really one of the most important Mm. as far as as I'm concerned. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's so good. I think, yeah, it's having grace for yourself as well, right? I mean, because at the end of the day, like like you're saying, you, know, I, you can beat yourself up for not getting it right very often, but that takes all the time anyway, right? So now you're, you're spending all your opportunities to be present, just living in the past, beating yourself up for being rubbish at it. Um, yeah. Or you could go, okay, well, let's move on and I can be present right now. I can I can step out of that. Um, but, uh, it's, it's recognizing that actually it's the warring, it's the fighting, it's, it's, it's in the act of fighting to be present that I actually lose the ability to be present. It, you mm-hmm. know, it, it's, it's this in the, in the fighting to lose my ego is such an egotistical thing almost, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so we find actually it's in this like striving that we actually are losing our capacity to do it anyway. You have to let go. You have to hold this thing lightly. You have to go of course I've not got it right very often. I got it right never before that though. So, you know, here's to tomorrow where I get it right a little bit more, maybe five times tomorrow. I'll recognize it in the, you know, 10,000 seconds or however many seconds in a day, you know? Uh, Yeah. The, the, the learning curve is steep, isn't it? It it is. It is. But I, and I think it's recognizing again, like we were saying earlier about God meeting us where we are. And God going, oh gosh, you think it's about being present every second of every day? No, 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 no. It's it's about the journey of learning to be present. <laughs> that is just as much uh, a joy to to God of, as as us getting to that place where we can be present in every second of every day. The, mm-hmm. the, it's it's not about the the getting it right. Um, and if it was, we would have got it right a long time ago as humanity. You know, Jesus would have left us in a lot better a place. If it was all about getting everything absolutely right. Uh, maybe, maybe growth is more about getting it wrong than it is right. Getting it right. Mm. You know, it's, it's uh, being in constant need of mercy every day. Mm. You know? So good. Yeah. So good. Yeah. I, cause I, I, I think that's true. I think our whole concept of, of holiness. Um, it means to be set apart, of course. It means totally other than, 
But when we think about God's holiness, especially those of us that have been raised in traditions like mine, it, it sounds, it, it almost has a connotation of unapproachable. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a mistake. I think really the path to holiness, if it means to be set apart, totally other than, which that in many ways describes God, you know, be ye holy as your father in heaven is holy or be ye therefore perfect. Mm. I don't think that that is an over the top demand that he's making of us as much as it is an invitation for us to experience it and to return to wholeness. Mm. Now, pardon the play on words, but I think that's really more about what holiness is about. It's about returning to whole and that wholeness is not just for me personally but the wholeness exists that exists between me and the rest of humanity yeah you know that's that's what dispels the whole dualistic thinking Mm. um i i may i live with this myth of separation that i'm different than you but I'm not, yeah. you know, yeah. and you never connect more with God and his holiness and your own personal wholeness until you become aware of that. Yeah. So as someone that works a lot with, um, with churches, with church leaders and stuff that is, is, has a desire to move people beyond this dualism. I, I can't see many institutions that are more dualistic than the the certainly the western church is certainly the uh the the main uh institutions within the western church seem to be extraordinarily dualistic very us we're in you you're out not even of the world and us but even like you know the baptists and the methodists and the lutherans and the charismatics you know even amongst ourselves we're so dualistic how do you see this changing how do you see it breaking down like do, do you have a do you have like a battle plan of like how you go about doing this or do you, do you think that there's a, a trajectory that the church needs to be going on for it to change? Or do you think uh, something has to happen outside of that? You know, I'm talking about asking questions that aren't loaded. I'm, I'm loading all my questions for this yeah. to see like, is there anything to any of this? Well, I, th- I think that any, any change that is sustainable has to be systemic in nature. It, it's, it's not, like uh, you can inject an entire population with these ideas mm. and suddenly, you know, is, it is, it is in their system, so to speak. It's more systemic. It's something that has to come up through the root system of who people are. When I use the word systemic, I, I you know, I, as soon as you ask that question, I, the, the first thing that came to mind is what Jesus talked about when he described, you know, the seven parables in the 13th chapter of Matthew of the, of what the kingdom of God is like the, the seven distinct parables that he uses there to describe what the kingdom of God was like. There's one common denominator between all of them. And that is that all seven of them have to do was something that is concealed. Mm. It's not obvious. A net being cast into the sea. Uh, he talks about 
in particular, the kingdom of God is like a woman who hid leaven in meal. So, you know, interesting application because leaven had been consistently used as a type of something that was sin, and he uses it as a positive metaphor. Mm. And he, and so, you know, the essential characteristics of leaven is that leaven is for certainly small, it's in, almost infinitesimal compared to what it's introduced to, and it's silent. But over time, it affects everything that it's introduced to. So I believe, you know, for me at least, that the way that, you know, you, you begin to see the change that we all desire to see take place is that we recognize that it's introduced that way. It might, it might be um, something that we, th we think, you know, well, we're not having as big an impact as we ought to because, you know, we've been conditioned to think that it's the loud and the audacious mm. that brings change, you know. That was just not the methodology of, methodology of Jesus, was it? Yeah. And, oh, uh, so true. and so our tendency to think is if, if it's not, if it's not loud, if it's not, you know, just in your face that you're going to go unnoticed. And yeah. I think that's a mistake. I, and I, I believe that there is, there's probably far more, positive change that is taking place than most of us are even aware of yeah. uh, because the information is controlled that we get. We don't, we don't really know. We think because we live in a, in a information age where everything is real time and that uh, we've got our, our, our fingers, so to speak on the pulse of what's happening. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that there is something that is happening that I'm very encouraged about mm. that uh, may not be as obvious, you know, uh, maybe I guess some people think that's a utopian perspective, but I, I really believe that it's true. And I think that's, I think that's how all sustainable change takes place. Yeah. As I said, it's systemic in nature. It's something yeah. that comes up through the root system over, over mm. time. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, it's it's really interesting. You say I I I hundred percent agree. I think it's it's it requires this deeper change to happen. One of the things that I found when I was in Georgia I was talking with all sorts of different people. In, fact, in Louisiana, I, I was talking to some people, and I was fascinated um, talking to these these guys that are in early twenties and they're in university, and there's a group of four or five of them doing their master's degrees. You know, so very you know young, progressive, educated, or they were doing arts degrees, you know, English and history and things. So I'm like, wow, these must be very progressive people. And one of the girls says to me, oh, uh, I just broke up with my partner. Um, and, and so I was asking about that. And she said, well, basically what it was is we were going out for a year and he just wouldn't introduce me to his parents. And even when he was introducing me to his friends or talking about me to his friends, he would always say, oh, my friend. He would always call me his friend and he would refuse to in introduce me to his parents. And eventually it came to a point and I was like, what is going on? What is the deal? It's been a year. And it turned out it's because she is of Indian heritage. So she has brown skin. And I'm like, hold on. 
So because to me is a, a, I don't know if it, I, I live in a bubble. I, I certainly, we all live in bubbles, but maybe me being in the UK or, you know, in Europe or whatever, or my subset in the UK of my progressive ideology or whatever, but I'm like, hold on. So it's 2020 and we've got maybe a 22, 23 year old doing a master's degree who's embarrassed to be dating someone of a different race. And I'm like, yeah. oh my gosh, this is huge. But what's fascinating is that is the, that is the end of that conversation for me where, uh, or of that issue in a sense where if, if we ask, how does that change? How, how is it, how does it, uh, how do we move forward from this? If you just go down maybe six, seven years to people that are 15, 16 years old, and I met a bunch of young teenage or like mid teenagers, I was asking them like, what, what is the culture like in your high schools? You know, like these are conservative Christians in their family upbringing and things like that. But I'm like, where are you at? What do you believe? Like, what do your peers believe? There's not one of them that has any concept of like furthering, uh, certainly any explicit racism, maybe some implicit racism is there. It always is in all of us. Um, but they're like, Oh no, like, are you kidding? But these are people that were raised by the internet. They, they aren't raised by their culture. Mm-hmm. They're raised by a, 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 an ex, a exposure that is beyond them. So they can be in a rural town in Georgia, but it's the it's the people in the cities: New York, San Fran, you know, Seattle, London, Paris, C- Sydney. You know, these are the people that are exposing them to how the world should work, what the world should look like. And for years, we in the church have gone, "Oh, this is the evil agenda of the world to you know water us down and make us you know." non-christian or 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 than our good christian values and there's maybe some elements of that can happen of course that it can change us negatively but when i look at the next generation i think oh my gosh there is some serious systemic change where talking to these kids even about what bullying looks like and they go oh my gosh yeah bullies like they are the least cool people in school and i'm like Oh, that is not my experience of school. When I went to school, it was the cool kids that bullied everyone and yeah. you were uncool because you were, you know, getting bullied. And, and now it's like, oh no, well, we know like being kind, being compassionate, showing empathy to someone that's weak or disabled or, you know, has ginger hair or is shorter or whatever ridiculous thing that, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, we were getting bullied over something like that. Now it's like, oh no, the, the coolest kid is the kid that's comfortable in themselves and loves people and looks after. And I'm like, this is a crazy systemic change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my work with youth here in the UK, I've worked with youth for many years. I've seen that develop, but I was fascinated to go into a rural place where a lot of those things are not uh, systemically driven uh, in, the, in the overall culture, but to find that it doesn't matter because these kids are being raised by YouTube by TikTok, by Instagram, by whatever, Netflix. And, and yeah, their education is a certain bubble and their families are a certain bubble, their churches are a certain bubble, but they live outside of that. And I think it's, it's a really exciting time where, it, to me, we live in the new Reformation where the Reformation, the reason the Reformation hit wasn't because Luther was particularly charismatic. It was because he had a printing press. You know, yep. I mean, if we, if we break it down to why it works then, why then? People were asking questions before then they just were silently killed and moved on before anyone else really found out. Luther could, you know, send out flyers and leaflets everywhere and start publicizing things. And other people could write and come off his ideas and publicize more books and literature to share. And how much more so today where you don't have to go and hunt out a library and know what kind of terms to look up to try and find out about a heresy or something that you might be entertaining. You, your pastor can say, 
by the way, this is the way it is. You're going to burn forever in eternal conscious torment. And that's the way the Bible says it. And you can type in eternal conscious torment. Is it true into Google? And immediately you've got 300 different views. Mm -hmm. And you know, the next generation, maybe uh, my generation, certainly your generation will be less inclined to quickly jump on their phone and do that. But the next generation, you can't get away with any bullshit. You can't get away with oh, any no. black and white no, they're, dualisms they're, because they'll, they'll type that dualism into Google and find out very quickly it doesn't work. Yep. Um, and so I get really excited about the, the possibility of that. Um, but I don't know how much the, the system, you talked earlier about in, you know, institutions and movements that we mentioned briefly, and, and I think we talked about it earlier as well, but maybe it might be interesting to talk a bit about that. But I think, I think that's a movement that I don't know if the institution of church as it operates on the whole in the West, if it's ready for that kind of mass information, mass questioning, mass exploration. I just don't know if church is ready to sustain that or to, or to uh, hold it up. I don't know if it's got the wineskin for that wine. Um, do you have any thoughts on that maybe? Well, no, I would agree with you. I, I, but I am encouraged, you know, on, on the larger scale, you're right. I, I, I don't think that they have, there, there's far too much intolerance for that kind of thing. Uh, but, but I am encouraged in meeting with people, so to speak, off the record. Uh, that are not, you know, at first I thought that I was going to be on a very lonely journey because, uh, you know, I'm of the baby boomer generation. I was born in 1958. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but I have been just really encouraged in, in discovering that there are people even my age and older that have been on the, I mean, th think about how egotistical that was. You know, I, I, I thought I was probably one of the only few. Uh, millennials, of course, are more inclined because of what you just described. Mm. They're going to fact check you. Yeah. And, and their discernment is very underrated by people of my generation. Mm. Something else, you talk about these subsets that I think is really unfortunate. And, uh, could potentially sabotage the whole prophecy of Malachi of turning the hearts of fathers to the children and the children to the fathers, mm. um, which I think is a, uh, an important and essential prophetic characteristic that, that any of us that have the privilege of being called fathers uh, should be aware of. But um, the thing that I was going to say is that, uh, so many people of my generation have, um, you know, referred to millennials in a very condescending way that they are, they have a sense of entitlement. They don't have any mm -hmm. work ethic, you know, um, the derogatory label of, you know, I don't know whether you've heard it in Europe, but they're snowflakes, you know, mm -hmm. that really grates on me because they assume that all millennials and most millennials don't even like to be referred to as such, you know, but most 30 somethings, they, uh, they're, they're not one size fits all any more than people of my generation. Yeah. We're not all created equal. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, 
And so the reason why I mentioned the whole thing about fathers and sons, and it's not gender specific, of course, I understand that there've been many abuses and misuses of that principle as well that mm. have created uh, cultures of control and codependency. Um, and there's a lot of people that definitely have an aversion for that for obvious and understandable reasons. The fact remains is, is that I think that there's an emerging generation in particular the millennials that really are not defiant. They're mm. not um, in, in their questioning, in their fact checking. Uh, it, it is not meant to be defiant. Yeah. You know, um, actually they have many core values that we should admire. Uh, most people, in my generation, are not aware of them. They're not as materialistic as we are, were, mm. you know, I'm, I'm finding that out in my limited reading is that, you know, they're, uh, they don't say, have the same aspirations of what we would refer to as it relates to the American dream, mm. you know, a house and a white picket fence and a 401k retirement fund, all that, all that kind of stuff. They, they, for the most part, want to make a difference. Well, how admirable is that? You know, yeah, it's a beautiful, yeah. They, and that's why they're concerned about, you know, all these, you know, things that, uh, that most of us in my generation dismiss and say, well, climate change is a hoax or uh, all this uproar about social justice. It's, uh, you know, all this is just a diversion and, and that's creating an unnecessary divide, mm. you know, would come uh, maybe in some ways full circle to what I want to talk about, what we were talking about earlier is that I don't want to do that. I want to be a bridge and, and I yeah. want to, I want to be able to, you know, for them to feel like that they can safely without reprisal, they can, um, they can call me out. Mm -hmm. you know? uh, I shouldn't, yeah. I, you know, I'm not saying I get this right all the time, like I mentioned earlier, but I shouldn't have such a, uh, such a sensitive ego that if, if somebody younger than I, somebody young enough to be, you know, one of my sons, mm -hmm. my natural sons call me out on something that I should get offended by that. I could say, mm -hmm. okay, all right, maybe I was wrong. Help me. Because it's, it, it, it's not, it, it, it's reciprocal in nature. You know, yeah. uh, they, the, the misunderstanding, the gap that is created is because of all the things, the, the prejudices that we have and the stereotypes that we have my generation concern, concerning that yeah. age group. And so the assumption is, is that you need to learn from me. I can't learn from you, yeah. but it's a reciprocal you know, thing. And, yeah. um, and, and mm -hmm. I think at least, you know, maybe, maybe I, I don't have a, a clear perspective on it, but I, I think that there are people that are, you know, your age that are looking for that. That's why we're having this conversation. You know? Yeah. Absolutely. But I feel like I'm this fountainhead of wisdom. You know, I have learned some things. Mm -hmm. Do I believe that you need to listen to some of the things I have to say? Yeah. But that doesn't mean that, you know, all wisdom is proprietary. You know, it's like, no, absolutely. Yeah. You know, the man, the man whose name is synonymous with, uh, with wisdom is Solomon. And he wasn't an old man when he got the download, he was 20, 21 years old. It's crazy, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Mm. So yeah, I am. Uh, I, 
I am encouraged, even with all of the vitriolic language that you hear mm-hmm. these days that's coming yeah. through our, our, our media, uh, because, uh, and what you just described, um, I think probably some of it had to do with where you were geographically, the deep south. Absolutely. I mean, I travel a lot through a lot of other parts of America and, and I see it to different degrees in different ways and different things. So I, I'm, I'm very aware. When I was with them, I was like, I realize I'm in like a bubble, like big time. But do you guys realize you're in a bubble? <laughs> um, no, they don't. But yeah, so it's, it's sort of, I mean, I'm going to New England next, uh, on, on the 8th next month and totally different world um uh, right through kind of i'm gonna be based in like nashua but like um up through massachusetts vermont um maybe northern new york um so a few different areas um, new hampshire okay. uh, yeah 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 well yeah uh, but it's a different world you know and, and so i think it just shows again we're, we're, to the degree we open up to something that's different right and and like it's craziness to think well, to me, it seems crazy to me that I can look at someone that's gone, oh, wow, you've had almost 30 years more experience than me in life. Of course, you've got stuff to teach me. But the, the humility on the flip side for me to look at someone that's 10 years my junior, 15, 20 years my junior, look at a 10-year-old and go, you probably could teach me some stuff right now because you've got a, a perspective on life that is so different to me. You know, I remember talking, when, so when I was in Georgia, talking to some of these 15-year-olds and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm like, you actually are less dualistic than I am. Like, is it on any level possible that there's kids growing up that are already transcending dualism? I'm like, I feel like privileged that I have the concept that I may one day transcend some dualism occasionally for a few minutes here or there, 10 years from now. You know, that's where I feel I am on the journey. And I talk to people younger than me and I'm like, oh my gosh, wow. Like, they're, they're going to get it. They're going to yep. be living in that. You know, by the time they're 30, 40, they're going to be, there's going to be a whole generation of people that are on the whole. And again, you can't pigeonhole everyone in a generation to one thing, but on the whole, people are growing up realizing, oh, this dualism thing is kind of crazy. It's not how it works at all. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, even just looking at teenagers and how they, they engage with their parents. now, I'm like, oh my gosh, if I had engaged my parents like that, I would have grown up much wiser, much more, uh, well set for the rest of my life you know and my parents and my relationship with them would have been better and you just look at that and again as people have terrible relationships with their parents uh, of course there's always that dynamic but again on the whole things are moving in this direction and i think it's the it's the thing of the loudest voice gets the news piece right the right. if it bleeds it leads if, if it's bad news we stick it on the front page if it's people yelling well we'll get a soundbite from them way more than we'll get a soundbite from the wise wizened person sitting back going well it's this, you know, we're not going to listen to that guy. Give us the guy that's screaming in someone's face. We'll get a 10 second clip from that. That's much better. And I think we, that, that does rob us a little of, I think, seeing what's happening uh, behind the scenes, like what you're saying, that there is an amazing amount of uh, good happening behind the scenes. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. And, and that, like I said, that may, some people may think that that's um, overly optimistic. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I do believe that in the end, that love wins. Mm-hmm. I, I do believe that uh, the kingdom of God is is going to advance, and I'm, I'm I, you know I'm even careful about my use of that term, the kingdom of God, because when I say the kingdom of God, what that means 
to some people is entirely different than what I've, yeah. I mean, you know, um, but I, you know, I really do believe what Victor Hugo said that, you know, he said the, the, the invasion of armies can be resisted, but not an idea whose time has come. Yeah. Uh, uh, it, it's true. And uh, that, I mean, that kind of, I think reflects what Jesus said again about the kingdom of God is like a woman who hid leaven in meal and uh, it eventually affects it all. Yeah. So um, mm -hmm. the, the, the revolution, when we hear, we hear the word revolution, <laughs> you know, I think we, we tend to think of it like you just described, you know, it's, uh, it's something that's almost militant in nature that it is, mm. that it, it is, you know, audacious and a takeover and that kind of thing. But let's look at the revolution of love that Jesus introduced, you know, yeah, and, uh, and how it came about going back to that whole thing that we mentioned earlier, you know, in Mark's gospel, and he says, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a totally different spin on the word that it was already in play in the dominant narrative. You yeah. know? Um, and it, it was in essence, what he, what he taught was a subversive form of wisdom that was more subversive and alternative to the time that would have been considered not only by the, by the empire, but also by the, by conventional religion of the time as, as being propaganda. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's totally counter to everything that, you know, was in play when he showed up and, uh, but the way he went about it. Mm. It's beautiful, isn't it? Absolutely beautiful. And yeah, I think well, that, that is what will save this world. You know, yeah, we mentioned Zand earlier, but you know, it's this beauty will save the world, but this love, this, this grace, this compassion. No one can see that and not go, oh my gosh, that's beautiful. You, you can't look upon uh, one person loving another and go, oh my gosh, that's a beautiful thing. Someone feeding the homeless, someone taking an orphan into their home, someone giving a, a widow a hug because they've just lost their loved one. Like, you can't look at that and not be broken yourself. You can't look upon that and not be moved uh, yourself. And we can look at someone screaming their head off on, you know, on the news or on a, a televangelist you know, TV channel or whatever. We look at that all day and not be moved sometimes. Uh, sometimes it moves me in a very negative way. Um, but, yeah. you know, you can't, you can't look upon these acts of love and compassion and empathy and grace and kindness and mercy and not be moved in a profound way. And I think that's what moves humanity forward. And, and that, has moved. I mean, anyone that's done any form of history lesson, you know, it doesn't take much to see the radical transformation in the last 2000 years. And um, while Christianity has screwed up on monumental levels a lot of the time, the world is better for Christianity. There is no oh, yeah. question. Uh, and this message of Jesus, as much as it was co-opted in many ways, it's still come through a lot. Uh, yeah. you know and so you can talk about the evils of the empire, but there were plenty of people in the empire loving and you can talk about the evils of this institutional religion but there's plenty of people within it that are transforming the world and loving absolutely. their neighbor and um, absolutely i think there's so much good to be seen yeah that's the, that's the reason why that you know i think i mentioned earlier that it doesn't have to be an either or thing if you if you have uh what i believe is part of part of my assignment to be a bridge mm. and 
So, you know, I, uh, I understand where people are coming from when they become very critical of the, of the conventional or traditional church. I get it. Um, and, and I, I certainly want to extend grace to people that feel like that they had to leave, uh, the current expression of the church in order to find God. But here's the one qualifier on that. That doesn't mean that all of the conventional church or traditional church is irrelevant yeah. or should be, you know, totally dismissed as being irrelevant and, not up to speed with, you know, what is really important today because, you know, you were there one time I was Absolutely. there. I still am. Absolutely. You know, uh, and you know, at the point of being redundant, you know, if I have transcended to any degree, I should include them too. Yeah. You know, hundred percent. It's by the grace of God that you are who you are and know what you know. Yeah. And that and that alone, or you would be, you know, I don't know what your background was, but let's say that you grew up Anglican. Well, Phil, you can still be back there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and in a sense, I still am there. There's definitely a whole host of my makeup is where I came from. Right. You know, I, there's no way to escape that and you can run from it, but the, the person that's running from it is the person that it created. Um, yeah. And, and if you hadn't been through that, 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 uh, terrible situation you wouldn't be the amazing person you are today right if we can see it so black and white um, right. the, the example like... i often give is um if we look at something like spiral dynamics or, or you know so sort of ken wilbur's kind of like levels of consciousness and stuff is there was an interesting experiment done where they um they basically looked at how people influence um prisoners and so they looked at people that were in prison who, generally speaking, on the whole, if you deal with uh, broad sweeping statements, people who are in prisons are generally at that kind of warrior, uh, spiral dynamic stage reds. You know, the, it's very much, it's very egotistical. It's very, I wanted something, I take something, you know, it's, uh, I, I want that, I'll t steal it. I want that, I'll rape it. I want that, I'll, uh, I don't like that, I'll kill it. You know, it's, it's that kind of level. Now, not everyone in prison is there either. And so that's far too broad a stroke. You know, I mean, there's plenty of people in prison, especially in America, for not much of anything, it seems. Um, but what's fascinating is they looked at the different types of organizations that tried to influence those prisoners and then what happened to those prisoners. And they looked at like really um, conservative, evangelical, black and white thinking Christians. And then they looked at like very progressive, um, very liberal, very hippie, whatever languages you would give to these kind of other types of churches. And they said, well, which ones are actually influencing these, these prisoners? And, and when they come out, which ones are seeing the most positive change? Well, what's fascinating to me is if I look at this as a progressive thing, or maybe you know, I'm a bit more left-leaning or whatever, and I thought, oh, well, obviously this model would work better because it's more evolved or more enlightened or, or more progressive or whatever. It's not true at all. The, the ones that most affected prisoners in a positive way that transformed their lives, that stopped, that lowered reoffend rates, that um, enabled them to go back into workforce and into communities and better their community for being there. And, and they got stuck into church, the evangelical conservative churches. And it's because people at that level need some black and white structure, some rules, some, some stability. Right. And, and so I often use that example to be, you know, you might be in a different place. You might look back upon where you've been and gone, oh yeah, I'm not there anymore. And it's, it's rubbish. It's not good. Well, 
maybe for you now, it's not helpful. Maybe for you now, you can see it as toxic. But actually, at some point, it was probably really formative for you and really important in shaping certain elements of you. Absolutely. And, and, and I think we need to remember that there are people that are a step before that, that still need that to exist for them to ever have the chance of growing to where you are. Because what we often think is, it's, it's like, you know, imagine a, a, a progressive uh, liberal person who wants to save the whales going into uh, southern Sudan and trying to talk, uh, what's his name, uh, Kony, the guy that's, uh, you know, m has child soldiers and he's killing everyone and he's like, you know, got kids in the mines and he's like mutilating women and stuff. And they go into, into this place and they go, Hey, listen, Joseph, uh, we'd really like to talk to you about um, using, uh, stop using single use plastics because it's getting thrown in the ocean and it's, um, it's causing a lot of problems and the whales are dying. We know what would happen, right? They'd yeah. be dead in about a millisecond, yeah. you know, but, yeah. but this I think is sometimes what we, what we're trying to do is we, as we transform, Form and as we change and as we move on from one stage of life to another or one expression of Christianity to another or whatever that looks like, we demonize another stage, but actually forget that's probably one of the most important stages for a whole group of people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if any group of people is ever going to influence somewhere that's in those like very militant states of life, it probably is the evangelical conservative churches. Those are, those are the churches that are exploding in Africa because Africa's coming out of a lot of that, uh, uh, of, of those stages of, of, of how they've operated their cultures. And so they need to move into that. They can't, you know, it's like talking China into stop, you know, abusing the, the planet to, to grow and develop. And it's like, well, they didn't get an industrial revolution. We did. It's kind of unfair for us to be like, well, you don't get to have one. Um, it's probably a good idea for us to figure out how can we speed that up and get you through it so you don't, you know, kill us all. But <laughs> it, of course they're doing that. We did it. There was just less of us then, so it was less of an issue. <laughs> you know? Right. Uh, it was a billion of us on the planet at the time when we were doing it, so it wasn't a big an issue. You know? yeah. uh, now it's just a billion of them, never mind the rest of us. Um, I think yeah. that's a great comparison in, in the direction I want to go in. You know, mm. uh, Not just demanding that people come to where I am before I can have you know, interaction with them. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, dude, I'm going to have to go. Yeah, I, I, we need to wrap up. So let me finish by saying thank you so much, obviously. But oh, how can right. people connect with you? How, how, if people want to like try and speak to you or follow you, is it, are, you're on Instagram, I know. Um, what's what's yeah. your Instagram name? Is it just Randall Worley? Let's uh, see. Uh, let's see. I'll have to. Because <laughs> well, I don't manage that account. Uh, I, I noticed. The Randall Worley. Uh, it is the Randall Worley. Okay, cool. I'm going to put this stuff at the bottom of the show notes so people can connect with you. What's your website? Is that randallworley.com? Yeah, randallworley.com. Cool. There's all the need for that. And, awesome. Uh, my, yeah, that's what it is. The Randall Worley. Awesome. Uh, and are you still traveling or is there stuff, is there ways people can connect or see you speak or hear your Yeah, our, our schedule is usually updated on the website. On, on the website. And uh, quite often, you know, we make people aware of it on Instagram. We're more on Instagram than we are on other forms of social media. I haven't been on Twitter in a long time. Me neither. Me neither. Yeah. I feel bad about it. Every now and again, I'm like, oh, I pray maybe I should. But 
Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> thank, thank you so much, Phil. Thank you for coming on. Honestly, it's been a privilege. I appreciate we'll you giving us so much of your time. And yeah, we'll, we'll have to catch up again. For okay, sure. Buddy. But yeah. All right. Yes. Love you, man. Catch you later. Yeah. Uh-huh. All right. That was Randall Worley. And I hope you enjoyed that chat as much as I enjoyed chatting with Randall. He's such a, a great, wise person. Um, I love how he um, appears to have transcended that dualism and is able to look at life uh, in its broad complexity and, and approach it in a more nuanced way. And we need a lot more people like that in this world. Um, and so a real privilege to get to talk with him. I'm going to be doing more interviews in the coming months. I'm going to be trying to ramp that up a bit. Um, and so if you have certain people you'd love me to interview, um, send me a message. Let me know who you want me to chat to and also pester them. Send them a message and say, hey, if Phil gets in touch with you, please do a podcast with him. Um, and that would be great. Um, as always, you can uh, watch a whole host of resources for free over on thegracecourse.com. Um, there's all the podcasts uh, as a video. Um, there's loads of videos on teachings on a whole host of different topics there. And if you appreciate what I'm doing and, and the stuff that I'm putting out uh, for free, everything is always going to be free. Um, I'm very committed to that. If you appreciate that and you'd like to financially support me in what I'm doing, this is my sole income. Um, I do this full time. Um, you can also partner with me over there at thegracecourse.com. And so um, that would be hugely appreciated and I deeply appreciate all of you that are already doing that. Um, the fact that you help me pay the bills and feed my family uh, while I get to uh, the privilege of talking with you guys, pastoring you guys, encouraging you guys in your journeys, um, creating resources, videos and podcasts and things like that. It's, it's a real privilege I get to do what I do and I don't take it lightly that I only get to do what I do because of your generosity. Um, and so thank you very much for that. Anyway, I'm checking out. I'll see you in the next interview. Cheers.